The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. That got the most applause from all the ten people in here of anything today. Thank you all. Well, you know, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and the podcast was not about the pandemic. But the host started out by saying, before we get into our topic today, can we all just have a nice Omicron exhale? Can we just stop and breathe out and let go as much as we can? And this month, I know, has been a tough month for some of us. I have heard you say that this has been the hardest season of these last two years for a variety of reasons, some of them having nothing to do with the pandemic but just the ongoing experience of all this change, of all this distance in the midst of other losses and other stresses in your life, too. So I just start today with a little Omicron exhale. Yeah. About eight years ago, I had something rare in adulthood. I had a walk-down-the-street friend. In my neighborhood in South Philly, my friend Rachel and her husband Colin ended up renting an apartment just about three blocks away from where I lived. And they've moved away since, as adults often do, for work, for family, for other reasons. But for about four years there, one of us could text the other on no notice and say things like, hey, we're making tacos. Come over. I bought too much pie this week. Come help me eat it. That kind of connection was not something I'd had since college, kind of, when you're in the dorms, right? But before that, really childhood. And that proximity deepened our friendship. We didn't just call each other for tacos and pie, though that would have been enough, obviously. When one of us had a fight with a partner or a family member, and we just needed to get out of the house for a minute, when we needed just to sit on someone else's couch and curl up and not be surrounded by whatever was bothering or stressing us out in our own lives. We had such an easy way to do that. Maybe some of you can share your answer in the chat if you want or just reflect on it. When is the last time that you had a friend who was a neighbor? that you had a friend whose house you could walk to. It might be childhood for many of us. And of course, in adulthood, we have more freedom, right? We can do wonderful things that we have needed these past few years. We can get in our cars to go see a friend across town or even in another state. We can FaceTime people now. We can maintain these connections across great distances. But we know better than ever now, these last few years, how much it matters to also physically be in touch. And for many of us, that was one of the silver linings, at least of those early days in 2020, right? People talked about getting out in their neighborhoods more often, being out and having block parties, because at least you could breathe together outside, right? That was a safer place to be. Rachel did move away, but before she left, she gave me a gift for my birthday one year that I actually brought with me. 
It's one of those journals that's made out of the cover of a vintage book. And it's called Neighbors and Helpers. It was on my mind when we were thinking about this message series. Because we joked that this was us, this little like 1930s girl and boy. They seem to be petting a deer, which I don't advise doing. Feeding a gopher. I don't really understand what's happening here. But they're together, and they are supporting each other, and they are in touch with the people and the animals around them. And so this winter, we are practicing something as a whole community that I hope we will be inspired by individually in our lives. To reach out to some of our neighbors, to overcome the awkwardness, to not expect that we're going to be fast, instant friends. That's okay. But if we don't start to build those connections, then they will never come. Each week, every Sunday, we are bringing a different example to you of what it looks like to connect to other communities like ours around us, communities defined in all kinds of different ways. And so for our message this Sunday, I really wanted to speak to the immigrant communities and representatives of those communities in Chester County. We have significant populations of immigrants recent immigrants, newcomers to the United States, and they live in certain parts of the county. So you may not feel like you are in touch with these communities every day, but they are around us at all times. Some of us listening might be part of these communities or might feel closer to them. But for some of us, they may just be something we have heard about, know about, but are not in personal relationship to. And so I spoke with two different people. And I'm going to share a little bit of our conversations by video. I talked with them earlier this week. The first is Nina Guzman. Nina lives in Phoenixville, and she is the founder of an organization called Alianzas de Phoenixville, which serves the immigrant community in that town. So Aiden is going to play a clip right now of part of my conversation with Nina. Uh, Well, Nina, thank you for taking some time out of your day to talk to our congregation. I really appreciate it. Absolutely honored to be here with you, Lee. Good. I think your background is better than mine. I'm a little jealous. It's beautiful, your house. Really? Well, yours looks cozy. <laughs> it is. That's my, that's my MO. That's um, it. That's what we need today, cozy. Exactly. <laughs> on the 45th of January or whatever this is, that's what we need, yeah. Um, well, so um, I told you a little bit about the conversation that we're having this winter in our congregation, and it's all about learning about our neighbors. So... The first question I have for you is one that I'm asking everyone that I speak to this winter, how you became one of our neighbors. Did you grow up here in Chester County? And if not, where, where are you from? Well, I was born in New York. Let me say that correctly. <laughs> New York. That's how we talk over there. <laughs> and, um, uh, but uh, I, I was, my parents were part of that um, uh, Puerto Rican diaspora. They came from Puerto Rico um, when, the, you know, I guess the imposed economy of of the United States caused all of the agriculturists to lose their their work. Mm-hmm. Um, then um, you know I then moved to Puerto Rico uh, to I lived there for a few years and then I wound up in Pennsylvania. So I've been here for um, I'm gonna say 25 years. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of work the organization does? and how you define the community that you serve. So the, the community we serve, like we said, is folks that have 
that are displaced, like people that are forced to leave their countries. And that is also predominantly here, and it's, it's really unique to the Phoenixville area, is predominantly Guatemalan, mm-hmm. whereas other communities is predominantly Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we knew that there was a substantial population, but they had no direction. Like, we have so many resources, but who would help them to get connected to them? Mm. So we are that liaison that works, and we're true to our name, Alianza means allies, so we have to partner with so many entities to make this happen. Um, So we knew that even with all of our resources, if you don't have someone making that connection, and uh, then, you know, it's really like they're not included. Um, Plus, we all know that like in many communities there's a lot of um discrimination there is you know there's landlords that take advantage or there's wage theft um and that happens when you have a group of folks if they're displaced that means that they're in a status where they're probably non-citizens still or awaiting refugee or asylum status and that makes them very vulnerable one of the ones that really is very critical is our clinical trauma counseling program. Because if you're forced to leave your country, uh, go on a trek that you don't know if you're going to survive it. And then once you get to the border, and everyone knows already what happens at the border, detention. And then once you are released, the trauma doesn't stop. stop. Um, you're going to need to unpack that and deal with the trauma because we can give all of those, and we do, all of these necessary resources that everyone needs. We're there. But really the outcome of all of that help is so much uh, more impactful when you actually, they actually have a safe space to be able to unpack this. Most yeah. of the time we get here, and you, we all know the work ethic of many immigrants. It's like get to it. And you have children that have witnessed unspeakable things and women that mostly get raped, sex trafficked, um, gross violations of human rights through any one of those stages. And imagine just jumping right into a culture you do not understand, to systems you don't get, systems that are completely against you, um, and, and then having that on top of that that you can't even speak about. So that program is like a, a kind of holistic way that we start to deal with uh, the whole client. Everything else comes after that. It's like we sit down, and most of them are like surprised when they're new arrivals. It's like, you want to hear my story? Like they don't ever tell that. And that alone is a healing process, the beginning yeah. to a healing process. So we do that. We do have an English program, which that's the way the tool you put in their hands to connect to their whole world around them. Um, And we have everything else that makes, you know, that they need, like just humanely, food, clothing, uh, assistance in in getting proper housing and employment, anything you can think of. And that, and to de-isolate because... (laughs) Of course, if you're here, right, and you have a whole world of kids, imagine kids going into school. It's bad enough for any kid, right? It's just sometimes so daunting. Um, so we really dig into every aspect of their lives, and that's just the best outcome is to really, um, you know, deal with all those layers. Yeah. 
I can't imagine how important that must be, not only the safe space to share the stories, to begin healing the trauma of what was experienced during a migration process, and also because of the systems and the laws and the, the policies in our country, for so many folks, um, the, the daily experience probably, too, of, of that forces people into that isolation, that they're afraid to connect to government services, they're afraid to connect to so many supports because they don't, and the laws change all the time because people play politics with it, so they don't know if they'll be at risk of deportation or, you know, what, what I, yeah, I, it is not the same at all, but I can connect to that feeling because of living through the pandemic of like what it sort of feels like to have something in the back of your mind at all times. Always, that's continuing right. to hold a little bit of trauma, even if some big experience has passed, you're still living with a sense of threat. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is toxic yeah. stress. Yeah. And where it's constant. Um, let alone they dealt with and ran from. Now here, that's why I say the trauma doesn't end once they're released into the U.S. It's like you have that threat of deportation. You're scared of everything. You don't have that trust. And so, um, yeah, this is it, it's something that's very toxic, and you can imagine in children as well. Um, yeah, but you're, you're exactly right. There is this constant, constant, you know, hanging over their lives, every aspect. When you have no trust and you have this insecurity about life period where you're at, I mean, it just really, you keep moving on. A lot of people say, you know, we use that word a lot, resilience. That's the new word, right? And that is good word because it's like a Band-Aid. But we've put, when we overuse something, then it starts to lose its value. And we put so much on that, wow, what a resilient community we have as far as our immigrants and what they put up with. But um, you know, when we when we talk about that so much and not what actually caused them has to force them to be resilient, mm -hmm. we kind of lose a little bit of, okay, are we just talking about them or are we really going to the source of why they have to be so strong all the time? Yeah. And and at, at a certain point, you can't be so resilient anymore. At some point, you need to rest. At some point, you need to heal. And that also helps the next generation that you're not passing on trauma that you've carried also to to your children, which is what no no parent would want that for their kids. So, yeah. you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that the the population in Phoenixville specifically is mostly Guatemalan. Um, I remember not understanding that, and at some point I read an article a few years back that talks about migration that talked about migration patterns, and it made so much more sense to me when it came down to a human level that if you are someone living in Guatemala and you are needing to flee to the United States, well, you think, well, I have a cousin. Where are they? Phoenixville, right? And then that person has a neighbor. Well, where's my neighbor? Phoenixville. So sometimes whole villages, you know, whole whole areas in a home country become sort of transplanted. Yeah. Is that, exactly is that how right. the population ended up? Yeah. It is exactly right. And even when I started Alianzas, and I would ask them, hey, where are you from in Guatemala? And everyone said, El Porvenir, San Marcos. Everybody said the same thing. I'm like, wait a minute. What's going on here? Yeah. It is literally word of mouth. And yeah. then most they are mostly from a, a certain village. But I have to tell you, during the years, it's become so much more diverse. Hmm. Um, not only do we have every country and almost every country in Latino America, but we have folks coming from Egypt, from hmm. uh, Liberia, 
um, you know, all over West Africa. We have a lot of folks from all different Korea. Um, it's just getting so diverse. I think we're up to about 40 plus different nations that we have uh, served. Um, um, so, yeah. you know, while we uh, know that, you know, most of uh, the demographic here is uh, from Guatemala, yeah, we have to be uh, really um, aware of the fact that many countries are coming here. The mm -hmm. other that people do aren't aware of is the Brazilian community. Mm -hmm. Very yeah. sizable. Matter of fact, of course, we have Ben Comes Mexico, but they're almost right there with that population. That's how big this community is. So every t everywhere I get a chance to speak about our, our, our the folks we serve, we look out because we have a very sizable uh, Brazilian community. Olina, uh, thank you for The other person that I spoke with this week is named Rachel Rudder. And Rachel's a lawyer, and she's also a founder of a local organization called Project Libertad. And while Nina was telling us a little bit about the experiences of the whole immigrant population in the Phoenixville area, Rachel works specifically with immigrant youth. She works with teenagers who arrived in our area as children or with child refugees, unaccompanied arrivals. And so I'll share a little bit of my conversation with Rachel. And as both of these conversations come to a close, you will hear from both Rachel and then Nina again as I ask them how we can best welcome and support and connect with the newcomers in our area. Go ahead, Aiden. So I originally grew up in Lancaster County, um, so like central PA, not too far. Um, and I live in Phoenixville now. Um, I've been here for about five years. Um, I would say I first got interested in working with immigrant communities uh, when I was in college. Um, I went to college at Gettysburg College, um, way out in central PA, um, and there was a large immigrant community there. Um, and so that's when I first kind of started working with, um, with this population. Uh, and then after college, I was in the Peace Corps for a bit in Costa Rica, so got some more like experience working with like Central American um, youth specifically. And then when I came back, went to law school, um, and then I had interned at Highest Pennsylvania, which some of your congregation might be familiar with. It's a large yeah. nonprofit in Philly that does immigration services and refugee resettlement. Um, so I was really lucky to work there during law school and then for several years after law school, um, working with immigrant youth specifically. Um, so it all kind of connected. Um, I didn't always see it at the time, but in hindsight, it all kind of, it, the interest really was there from um, kind of the early days of my career when I was in college. And um, I'm really you know grateful to get to work with these kids now. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Project Libertad does and who you work with? So we work specifically with newcomer immigrant youth, um, primarily in Chester, Montgomery, and Bucks County. Um, so we have kind of two sides of the organization. We have our legal services. Um, so we're working with kids who are, for the most part, going through a process in immigration court. Um, it's called being in removal proceedings um, or deportation proceedings. So the government is trying to deport them back to their home country. Um, and we're helping them by representing them in court and helping them apply for whatever type of immigration status they might qualify for. Um, for example, we do a lot of asylum work, um, which is a protection for people who are in danger if they return to their home country. Um, 
And the reason that that is so important is that there's actually no right to a court-appointed lawyer in immigration court, um, even for children. So if you wow. are accused of a crime, uh, you could have a public defender if you can't afford a private attorney, but there's nothing like that um, for immigrants in immigration court. Um, and there's one quote that I always think of that an immigration judge said, and I, I can't remember the name of the judge, but he said something like, we're doing death penalty cases in a traffic court setting um, because technically it's considered civil and not criminal, um, although the consequences are you know, really dire if you have an asylum case um, and somebody is being forced to represent themselves and doesn't understand the language, let alone the law, um, and obviously like even more so for children. Um, so we represent children who are going through that process. Um, and then kind of on our other like social services side, we have a bunch of different services because they obviously have a lot of needs, not just their legal needs. Um, so we partner with an organization called Immigrant Psychology Network, um, which might be a great organization also for you to do something like this with, and I can put you in touch with them. Um, sure. And we do so some mental health support through our partnership with that organization, because um, that's another big need that these kids have. And um, we all know like mental health support can be really expensive, even if you're like a U.S. citizen with health insurance, it's very expensive. So let alone if you're you know undocumented, don't have insurance, don't speak English, um, it's really hard to find treatment for kids. Um, and a lot of the kids, most of the kids, have some form of trauma. Um, so we do that. We have after-school programs. We offer ESL classes for adults. We do a lot of trainings for educators and other professionals who are working with immigrant youth. Um, we do things like this in the community, right, like different types of outreach. Um, we have a mentoring program that we're just starting up now that's going to be like a one-on-one -on -one program. We have a girls' empowerment program. Um, so trying to just really be as holistic as possible um, and, like, yes, meet their legal needs, but also think about all these other needs that they have. Um, and we really try to, like, involve the kids in, in being leaders as much as possible as well. Um, and especially having kids who have been with us for a few years kind of come back and be leaders to younger kids. It's a really important part of what we do that I think makes us somewhat unique. You know, one of the things I think is true for a lot of the people in my congregation, um, not everyone, but we live in, for all the reasons of all the systems, we tend to live in relatively segregated communities. We tend to know people of the same race, the same socioeconomic background. We tend to know people who have lives that are a lot like ours. Um, and when that is true, as it is in all of America and certainly in Chester County, we tend to think about these as political issues or policy issues. And we think of them as something that we read about or think about on the news, not as issues that are affecting our neighbors, um, people our kids go to school with. So I'm curious to hear you drill down a little bit maybe. I'm, I don't know if there's a predominant part of Chester County where you work. Are there particular towns, areas, um, and are there – newcomer immigrant students in, in most school districts in the county, or does it tend to be focused on certain areas? Yeah, so there are a lot of newcomers in Chester County. We're specifically working in Phoenixville, and we do have a large okay. population, um, as I said, mostly Brazilians and Central Americans. Mm -hmm. um, there are definitely other, like, pockets of Chester County where there's a lot, like I know Coatesville, Kennett Square, um, Avondale, Pottstown, um, yeah, there are a lot of towns where there are a lot of newcomers, um, and I see that just from, like, kind of thinking about the school districts that, you know, we think of as needing our services. We partner really closely with um, different school districts and kind of delivering services. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of newcomers in Chester County, and as you said, it is easy um, to kind of remain isolated from that if you're not, like, purposely trying to engage with it. Yeah. Um, kind of along the same lines, um, you know, a, a common 
question I get from congregants is when they're talking to people who are thinking about this as a political issue and they're maybe on the other side of it or they're not so sure, um, you know, organizations that support immigrant youth, organizations that support people regardless of their immigration status, um, you know, there are those who would argue that we shouldn't be building more support programs for undocumented immigrants, um, that programs like this only encourage unlawful migration to the United States. Um, and again, we can debate about that at this like high up level, but I'm really curious to hear your perspective as somebody who is in contact regularly with the actual people who are here in our community, kind of how you respond to that position. Yeah, so I think that for the most part, when I hear people say things like that, I, it's people who just don't know anything about immigration law. And I always feel like I wish I could just like teach everyone about immigration law, because if people knew what the law is, they would stop saying these things that don't make sense, um, which is obviously not true, because sometimes people just want to dig their heels in, right? Um, but so one thing we hear a lot is like, why don't people just come here the right way? Why don't they just get in line? So one thing that we always talk about as a part of our you know, trainings and outreach is that there is no right way for the majority of people. So there's actually no general application that somebody can file for, to, for lawful immigration status here, right? Um, you can't just decide whether you're already here and you're undocumented or you're overseas and you're like looking for a way to move here. You can't just say like, okay, I'm gonna apply for my green card. I'm gonna apply for my legal status. Um, you have to fit into one of three very narrow categories. Um, so the main three are either through humanitarian relief, which would be things like asylum or refugee status, um, employment or family petition. Um, for a lot of reasons, without getting too into the weeds, employment and family petitions are often not an option for undocumented people. Um, so it's kind of a common myth that you can just marry a U.S. citizen or have a, a U.S.-born child and they can petition for you. Um, but for the vast majority of people, that's actually not legally an option, right? Um, and then for humanitarian relief, things like asylum, um, even people who do have an option, um, like a lot of the families we work with are applying for asylum, the requirements are very stringent. Um, so it's, it's really difficult to win asylum, particularly for um, a lot of the types of cases we see from Central America. Um, so a lot of the cases are based on gang violence in Central America between these two primary gangs, um, MS-13 and the 18th Street Gang. Um, so those gangs actually began here in the U.S. in the 1980s in Los Angeles, and then were eventually transplanted down to Central America. Um, and a lot of the unrest that is going on in Central America that is causing people to come north and seek asylum is the result of U.S. foreign policy in the region um, from propping up corrupt dictatorships and causing civil wars in Central America, um, which eventually led to the proliferation of these gangs in Central America. Um, and I highly encourage people to just to do some more research and reading about that on their own time because it's something that I don't think gets talked about enough. Um, so we basically cause this refugee crisis and then kind of want to wash our hands of it when people are coming north to seek asylum. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought there. I get on my It's okay. It just it reminds <laughs> me also that you know, I also learned in history class about worker yeah. programs. You know, in, in another way, we also created patterns of migration because there were mm -hmm. times in American history when we said we would like immigrant workers, please. Absolutely. And, and then didn't really think through how that was going to shake out if people live here and build lives here for 10 years or 15 years, you know, that, that, that then have children here that, you know, just saying turn around and go back home is not in, in realistic relationship to how human beings actually live their lives. 
Absolutely. Yeah. There's a really yeah. good book that I recommend called Migrating to Prison um, that talks about this. There was a Bracero program which brought um, agricultural workers from Mexico for many years um, lawfully, and they would come seasonally and come and go um, in, you know, in, with the um, agricultural work. And then kind of overnight, we decided, nope, that's not the law anymore. Now you don't have any status here. But in the meantime, like you're saying, these people had established families here. Um, and so we basically made much of like Mexican and Central American migration illegal overnight by changing our laws. Um, okay, so this is where I was going. I remembered my train of thought. Yeah. <laughs> so um, for most people, there's not a lawful option. There's no line to get in. Um, even people who are, you know, qualified for something like asylum, um, these gang cases are really difficult to win because the courts have not been friendly to them, um, which is very interesting because the fact patterns are, like, not that different than what you see from asylum cases, for example, about the Taliban or something like that, except replace the Taliban with MS-13. Um, but it definitely has a lot to do with racism and which, you know, immigrants we want to admit um, and things like that. Um and then the other thing I like to flag is that most of the Central Americans we work with are asylum seekers. And if you go on the USCIS website, that's U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and click on the information about asylum, it literally says, step one, arrive in the U.S. Like, there is no way for people to apply from overseas. Um, there are some countries that have refugee programs um, where the United Nations resettles them here and they get, like, processed and approved before um, they ever come here, but for people from Central America, that doesn't exist. So when they come here and we detain them in jail-like conditions um, and treat them as if they're doing something illegal, they're actually applying for asylum the only way that they're allowed to under the law. Um, so that's legally, the they're actually doing it legally, yeah. That, yeah, that's, that's the only way to do it. And you're eligible oh. for asylum whether you cross at a port of entry, whether you're already in the U.S., it doesn't matter. Anybody can apply for asylum regardless of, like, how they entered the country. Um so that's another another thing, um, and I just I feel like a lot of this just isn't like generally understood. So then you have people kind of repeating these sound bites of like, well, why don't they just get in line? My grandparents came here the right way, um, and really it's just like there is no line. And when most of our you know ancestors came here, the laws were just different, and they wouldn't qualify to come under today's current laws. Yeah, I think there's a lot um, going on also with how um, some political leaders shape a narrative for us, you know, and they will talk about the things that immigrants are doing to our country that are bad um, while not talking about any of the benefits that immigrants are bringing to our country. Um, and also just assuming that, um, you know, that, that there's some we, which is United States citizens, citizens, right. That should, um, uh, that is entitled to something that those folks are not entitled to in terms of just basic human rights. Um, which from a faith perspective does not sit right with me, um, regardless of how we talk about policy and what smart policies might be for immigration. Um, you know, whenever we are arguing that, that, no, there's some bigger policy reason that we shouldn't treat a human being like a human being who's right in front of us, who lives in our neighborhood, who goes to school with our kids. Um, that's the place where I think for me, my values and my faith call me to say, you know, the law isn't always right. You know, sometimes we need to change things that are written into the law um, because it calls on something deeper and more more true in us. Um, and we've seen that in social movements about all these kinds of issues um, over the last few centuries in our country. So this might be one of those places, too. But, well, you know, obviously not everyone is a lawyer and not everybody is even super politically active. But just for for people in our community who are not immigrants, 
um, who want to find ways to support newcomers and immigrant members of our community, what are some of the ways that you would suggest that, um, that non-immigrants can be supportive of the immigrant community around us? I mean, I think one thing you can do is definitely contacting your representatives, supporting pro-immigrant policies um, so that those voices are coming from across the community, not just from the immigrant community, right? Um, donating to local organizations that are doing this work, and not just us. There's a lot of great immigrant organizations, um, you know, doing this work that needs support. Um, there's also a lot of people we have locally who, because of hearing about these things on the news, have decided to volunteer with us, um, and I think have found it to be like a very rewarding experience, um, wanting to just connect to the immigrant community locally. Um, so we definitely welcome volunteers. Um, and I think just like educating yourselves too about these topics um, and trying not to like let these myths proliferate and, uh, and continue um, kind of unchallenged, um, even, you know, at at Thanksgiving, kind of, you know, having those conversations and challenging these things when you hear them um, is really important. Um, well, you know, obviously the change we need is systemic, right? <laughs> and um, it, it sure helps when we pressure our local politicians. Um, it really does help. Relentlessly, we have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and the power of our vote. I always say, if our folks cannot vote, I always say, I'm going to go and I'm going to vote for you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, be mindful of the issues. Uh, and when you vote, keep in mind that you're voting. You're taking along Carmen and Maria and her children, and you know, uh, that's important. And the advocacy that we can do uh, that here locally, um, you know, I think that really it, it really is about neighbors. Uh, and most of us live next to or close to someone that we see them every morning and we don't know, we're shy, we don't know how to. I can't tell you how many times I've had folks come and say, hey, I like the work you're doing. I lived next to a Hispanic family for 20 years and I've never communicated with them. <laughs> I, and I don't mind that because mm -hmm. it has to start somewhere, right? And that, mm -hmm. that's really one of the most awesome things. And and there's just so many, just like you would any neighbor, reach out. You don't have to know the language to be able to communicate with someone. Yeah. You don't have to. When someone doesn't know the language, especially our folks, they read you so well. They rely on facial expressions. They rely on gestures. They rely, they pay attention to your behavior because that tells them if they're welcomed or not. And right. it's that simple. And the other way is that... Um, you can come and join us. There's th there are always things that you know we can use some help in. We are our volunteer family is the most precious um, because they're not just volunteers. They are literally friends with our folks. I really can say that because we have uh, teachers and people from all different professions and regular folks that in our ESL class that have taught and helped and do one on one sometimes when they need to. Uh, we have what we call delivery angels, that we have a food program, and sometimes the moms can't come or don't, don't have a way to get to Alianzas or can't bring their kids with them and carry this, and they get delivered every Monday at 3 o'clock. So if you want to be a delivery angel, please just, just contact me and we'll find a way. It takes just a few minutes to drop off a, a, a few bags and boxes of groceries. Um, so these are practical ways, just practical ways 
when we were corresponding, I did notice that you have a quote um, in your email signature from James Baldwin, um, who we uh, talk about at Wellsprings a fair amount, actually. We've done a number of um, sermons about his work, um, the documentary that was made about him a few years back. We did a message on. Um, so I'll, let me, I'll just read the quote for everyone. Ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy that justice can have. What makes that quote so meaningful for you? Hmm. Obviously, ignorance is not good. And uh, a power that that uh, tramples on others is not good. Imagine together and they usually go together. That's why the combination of it is, is deadly. And this ignorance really for me means you ignore hmm. what is really right there in front of your face. You ignore, if you ignore history, all of our history, however terrible it is, you are doing such a disservice to yourself, your own family, doesn't matter what color you are, or what background you have. Um, and the power uh, that we know we've been you know, more aware of is white privilege. And a lot of folks feel like this is a tender moment, and I get it. It is it is, is, a, is a tender thing nowadays. But like I said, if you realize, um, if you can face and realize uh, what that means, it is not just uh, understanding uh, that it, it, it does no good to other folks, but to your own family, your own children. These two things together, ignoring the truth and the, the power that uh, people don't want to admit that they have, um, uh, that it that tramples on others, even inadvertently, um, those two things together are deadly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we need to, as a country, face our history boldly, bravely. Um, and uh, privilege is also not just white privilege, it's other folks. I have privilege in my community, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we have to be conscious of it. Um, and, yeah, I, that's one of, one, of, one of the good quotes, um, uh, so many, uh, mm-hmm. that James Baldwin uh, left us. Yeah, and if those, are, if those are ferocious enemies of justice, then the powerful allies of justice can be like I love what you said ignorance is a way of ignoring and if we don't ignore and if we use our power for good then we are an ally for justice absolutely yes definitely definitely but I am hopeful because even though it has cost us right through this um you know the last administration and COVID um it has unearthed a lot of rawness right um and I, I'm welcoming of it all, uh, yeah. even those that still have trouble facing uh, our history as it has surfaced. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for it all because we need, in order to be able to deal with it, um, we have to face it and we have to grab, grapple with it, right? And we have to wrestle with it. And it's okay. It's okay. And we have to keep learning. Uh, so we're in a good place. We really, I know the times are hard. I know the injustices are enormous. But we really are in a good place to start to deal with this, right, and change history. Yeah. 
we're seeing it. We're seeing it now. We're not ignoring it. It's it's become impossible to ignore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and just what you're doing, we um, just really, um, you know, bringing uh, magnifying uh, those voices and what really is happening, what's really going on. You know, but I feel great in this interview. It's, you're so pleasant, but you have allowed right when we we're talking about real raw things and and it's okay and we need more real talk like this absolutely oh that's my that's my other mo besides cozy house decor is real talk (laughs) (laughs) we came all the way full circle (laughs) nina thank you so so much for all the time that you've given and all that you've shared with our congregation today i'm really really grateful thank you We're grateful to you and your congregation. We've received kindness from a few folks from there, and we're just so grateful. Um, The impact is I hope that one day everyone will get to know the impact of just, like, gloves that you guys dropped off. I think it was socks or something the other day. Socks. We always have socks, yes. Socks. Thank you so much. That's really just wonderful, a wonderful gift for our community. Things fall apart. The Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron, had a quote that has guided me ever since I read it and is guiding me as I think about these new connections and conversations with our neighbors right now. She says, we don't set out to save the world. We don't set out with that position in our heads. We don't set out to save the world. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. May we find ways to do that, big and small, within our own families, and within the neighborhoods and the friendships and the communities around us. For these prayers and for the ones that you all are carrying on your hearts today, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.